We are walking through Romans 3, 21 through the chapter 5, and we are observing here this amazing justice that is carried out on our behalf in our relationship with God. We're, we're happy to talk about amazing grace, but, but justice, we think that we escaped justice somehow if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. We think that somehow we got away from God's righteousness. But God's process is what he calls justification, declaring us righteous even when we in ourselves are not righteous. You know, uh, how, let me ask you, how much time of a parent's life is spent trying to help their child see that what they did was not justified by the situation, right? Or, or you shouldn't have hit him. That wasn't justified, you know? That wasn't the right thing to do, we're saying. The situation didn't justify hitting your sibling. Or you shouldn't have taken it without asking. That situation didn't justify It didn't make it right. The situation didn't make it right, we're saying, to take that without asking. How much of the back and forth between parent and child has to do with this type of discussion? But dad, you should have seen what they did to me. It didn't justify it. It didn't make it right. But mom, I was going to put it back when I was done with it. Well, your intention didn't justify it. It didn't make it right. Justification, whether we feel justified or not, it doesn't have anything to do with whether the actions were actually right or made right, if the circumstances actually made it right. And and that's what we're talking about through chapter 5 of Romans. And here in chapter 4, the idea that God's process of amazing justice is that he took sinners and made them right. He justified the ungodly. And we make this credited to our account. He credits it to our account by his grace through our faith in his doing so in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection for our sins. And when it comes to final judgment of things, for the whole of our lives, the question of whether we're justified, whether we were made right in what we have done is pretty important, right? You know, we talk about how moms have eyes in the back of their head, right? But mom, that's not how it happened. I saw you. She must have eyes in the back of her head. We're talking when when it comes to eternity, when it comes to whether or not we can be considered right or not, we're talking about the God that doesn't just have eyes in the back of his head. He knows our very thoughts and he knows the very intentions of our hearts. You know, when we say, well, God, that's not how I meant that. Yes, it was. He knows our very hearts. The fact that we could be declared righteous before him is an act. It's not, it's not injustice. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, it is amazing justice because every one of our unrighteous acts were placed on Christ. To be justified, declared righteous, apart from what we've done, David writes is about this being pretty wonderful. And we pick up in verse 6. We discussed verse 6 through 8 last week, but we're picking up here kind of for context in Romans 4. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is what David says. 
from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul, the writer of Romans, picks up in verse 9 on this idea of this blessedness, and he asks the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? In other words, the Jews, whom David was. Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham who be, who I'm sorry foot who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that, thank you, that our father Abraham had. I'm going to start at verse 12, all right? And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence of for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, we're going to be covering these verses over two weeks. You're like, okay, we're going to be here till one o'clock if not. <laughs> we're going to be covering these verses over two weeks, and we're going to be looking at our legacy of faith. Our legacy of faith, which stretches not just back to Abraham, but beyond Abraham, even back to the first people who walk this earth. Our legacy of faith goes back to very creation itself. You know, methods have changed over time, right? I looked up what were some of uh, what, webs one web what one website considered the 10 top technological advancements of the last century, all right, of the 20th century. Here are things that this website listed off as the top technological advancements. One, nuclear power. Okay? Second, the personal computer. Okay, these things 
did not exist before 1901, at least. You know, we're talking about the history. Third, the airplane. Next, the automobile. Next one is rocketry, right? Putting stuff up in space, getting things going. Uh, Next one is the submarine. There was actually submarines before the 1900s, but they weren't all that effective, I guess. Next one is antibiotics, right? Next is radio. And number nine, the television. And number 10, the internet. Right, so these things didn't exist. These were advancements, technological advancements of the last century. These were improvements on principles, improvements on ideas. But understand, though, that practices might have changed, but the principles that were important to us in these were the same. Valuing efficiency, valuing life and health and knowledge, and valuing relationships. All of these things improved upon principles that remained important to us, even as these advancements went on. You know, I heard a quote this past week that made me think about these advancements. One, it was that Winston Churchill said, it only takes a day for a lie to go around the world. And he was talking about how technological advancement of his day and age in the 1940s, that, that, that things were so advanced, he said, that it only takes a day for a lie to go around the world. Well, you know, today with Twitter, I mean, it takes a moment for a lie to go around the world. I mean, if somebody were to tweet something like, Queen Elizabeth is dead, I mean, in a moment, you'd have people debating about whether or not this tweet was true. But still the same, our desire to know, our need to communicate, even with the advancements, even with the changes, that principle remains. And that's what drives it. See, our legacy of faith when it comes to this is a principle, our truths, that have been passed down over the centuries adapted to customs and personality, but it has stayed the same in its essential structure. And that is this. A person does not have a relationship with God unless they are declared righteous by grace through faith. A person does not have a relationship with God unless they are declared righteous by grace through faith. We're going to be looking at these two weeks, a key, two key verses in, in uh, these verses of 9 through 25. They kind of translate the rest of it for us. And they connect Abraham's believing God to us as our means of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 23 and 24 say this, The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice here that Abraham was aware of his being declared righteous because of his faith. Notice that? The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. And this is the condition, the conclusion that Paul was arguing toward this, that there is only one way of justification, by grace, through faith, and it's always been that way. God's plan of justification by grace through faith was his plan and his process all along. And our being justified, our being counted righteous before him is based on our believing in God's work through Christ. Christ's death for our sin brought our justification, and his resurrection was because of our justification being accomplished. As it says, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So next week, we're going to tie into how God is life-giving and dead-raising. Okay? We're going to go verses 17 through 25 next week of looking at how 
God gave life to Sarah's barren womb and raised Abraham's body from what was being called good as dead. And we too are called to believe and we benefit from learning of Abraham's believing relationship with God. But we have something even more amazing and glorious and that's the life-giving life of Christ and the dead-raising power of God that raised his son from the dead. So the main idea that we're getting at this morning, and, and I know that it's kind of been a long trek here, but it's this, our legacy of faith in response to God's grace is our greatest blessing. And it is the only way in which any person has ever been declared righteous by God. Our legacy of faith in response to God's grace is our greatest blessing and the only way by which any person that has ever been declared righteous by God. So let's get to the first principle that we learn from verses 9 through 17 here, and it's just that we are justified through faith before personal action. We are justified through faith before personal action. It says, it is, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Let me just say something here for a moment. We're, it's easy for us to ask the question, why Abraham? Why is he important? Why, why does the Bible continue to go back to Abraham? Well, let's just understand the importance of Abraham from what we see on the world stage right now. Some of the greatest conflicts, the top conflicts on our, in our world right now have to do with Abraham. It has to do with people groups, religions that are claiming Abraham as their founding member. Islam, well, first let's talk about Judaism. Judaism, Abraham was the first Jew. He was the first person that God pointed to and said, I will have a relationship with you. I will make you a great nation. Many will come from you. And I will give you a land. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And he was the first Hebrew. And he believed God that he would do that, what he said, and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous because of his faith in what God said he would do. And embedded in that promise was the coming Messiah, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Come 600 AD, after Christ has come and after many Jews have believed in Christ as their Messiah and many then Jews and Gentiles go on to be God's church uh, following his Messiah, comes 600 AD or so and you have the creation of Islam, which even a history book will tell you was created in order to unify the Arab people that were splintered among worshiping many gods and Muhammad decided that his tribe's God, Allah, should be the one that would be worshipped by all of them because he wanted to unite the Arab people as the Christians and the Jews were united under one God. And as a part of that, it rewrote history saying, Abraham is our father. We are the children of Ishmael. The Jews are the children of Isaac. Every conflict, every major conflict on our planet right now has to do with this debate of who has claim to the relationship that Abraham had, the special relationship that Abraham had with God. 
And the Bible is arguing Abraham's relationship with God was by grace, through faith. And that is passed on to each person who follows in that same relationship. First idea here under this is, is that he looks at his, to, to, to kind of explain this, is the timing of relationships and rights is important. The timing of relationship and rights is important. Paul was given, uh, Paul is stating here that Abraham was given a righteousness by God before he was circumcised. 14 years, actually. 14 years before Abraham was circumcised, God made it clear, you have believed me, I count it to you as righteousness. 14 years later, Abraham is circumcised. Now, what's important about this is the Jews who would say, Abraham is our father only, and and he was made righteous through his following certain actions, such as his circumcision, they need to pick up and notice here. They need to pick up and be aware here. Wait, he was declared righteous long before he was circumcised. Um, I, I, uh, I love to jog, okay? And, um, and so I'm slowly getting back into jogging. And one of the things that I want to know, now that I'm past 40, was if I start jogging again, is it going to ruin my knees? Okay, I actually stopped jogging because I started developing some pain in the back of my knee, which I found out is something else that I don't have to worry about. But so my question was, but if I start jogging again, is it going to ruin my knees? And one of the things, one of the articles that I found was they actually said that jogging, the people that jog generally have better knees than people that don't jog. And this is why they said they said, well, they said, but that's not all that definitive because the worst thing on your knees is carrying extra body weight. So they're saying they can't say that when you're jogging, it's better for your knees because it's probably because people who jog weigh less than people that don't jog. Okay, and so they made this point. They said, so jogging and, your, and healthy knees is probably correlative not causative. Okay, so there are, they're saying jogging doesn't cause good knees. It probably corresponds with having good knees because there's other things that corresponds with jogging. So the argument is it's correlative, not caused by. Okay, and you're like, where have we gone here? <laughs> the right of circumcision, we call it did not cause Abraham to be declared righteous, Paul is saying. His being circumcised correlated to, or it corresponded to, him being declared righteous. It went along with, but Paul makes the point, 14 years later, it went along with. And since Christ began the church, um, we we have rights involved with our walk with the Lord. We should be baptized. We should practice the Lord's Supper. We should gather together as a body of believers. These things should correspond with our relationship with God, but they don't cause us to be righteous. And that's the argument that Paul is making with circumcision. Baptism in particular is something that... that Um, Very early on in the church's history, the church started to think, well, baptism and circumcision must be the same, okay? And this might make something very clear for some of you. There are some churches that baptized infants, okay? And the reason why this is there is they practice something that's called replacement theology. They replace Israel with the church, and, and so, in that replacement theology, they see baptism as the new circumcision. And they see God's covenant as being over the home, over the family, as it was in the Old Testament. And so, in order to bring a child underneath 
the promise of that covenant, they baptize that child the same way that Israel would, bap- would circumcise a male child. It flows out of something that's called replacement theology, replacing Israel with the church. Israel is not replaced by the church. And so we don't practice that. Baptism corresponds to salvation. It should be soon after we come to Christ. It celebrates the fact that I am in Christ. I am washed by his righteousness. I am immersed in him. But baptism does not cause salvation. Just as circumcision does not cause Abraham's salvation, nor was it required for it. We have wonderful signs of our salvation and marks of God's grace as he's given us. Any sort of ritual or sacrament that becomes a means of salvation, though, can even keep someone from being saved because their faith is in that thing. I did this. I do this once a week. I go to this place. I spend time with these people once a week. That makes me saved. Our getting together corresponds to the fact that we have received Christ as our Savior. It does not cause us to have a relationship with God. This is because God's means of salvation has always been by grace, through faith, apart from works. Secondly, we see here that the purpose of rites is important. It says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That would be us, by the way, you know, non-Jews. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So circumcision is a sign as a seal of God's righteousness. A seal. A seal is a a symbol of someone's authority. Okay? You know, if something was sealed, it's like, okay, the person with that person's authority has been here. It's not a way of earning righteousness. It's a symbolic reminder of ownership. It was in the Old Testament, circumcision was. And it was a sign in the fact that it signified that it was already Abraham's through faith. The legacy of Abraham's justification by grace through faith is available to two types of people, he says. Those who have faith without being circumcised, those would be Gentile believers, and those who are circumcised and also have faith as Abraham did, those being Jewish believers. That would be everyone has the opportunity to believe. You know, we visited um, family this past week uh, that live up in DeKalb, Illinois, and there on their front door... Uh, the Lyle family, whose um, uh, Kelly's sister Sarah married Gary Lyle, and they have the Lyle kids. And there on uh, their door is this hand-painted sign. It says, The Lyles, and it has a um, hand-painted picture of everybody in the family. I'm sure it was done by Kelly's aunt who, who does these things. And so you could, uh, before you even walk in the house, you can see this little hand-painted uh, picture of the family right? It's a sign to you of what the Lyles look like. It's a sign of who might be in this house when you walk in. Now, let me ask you something. If you were to ask one of them, hey, where are your kids? And they were to open the door and be like, they're right here. You're like, I know. I see the picture. I see the sign on your door saying who your kids are, but where are your kids? They're right here. You mean they're not here right now? No. And if you got through the art discussion and you found this is their kids, this sign on their door, that's their kids. 
And like there are no other, there's no real kids. This is as far as, that's, that's their kids. You'd be like, uh, we need to go. <laughs> it'd, it'd be nuts. It'd be crazy. In the same way, we want to be careful with dealing with signs that accompany justification. We want to make sure that we're not replacing what the sign represents with the sign itself. This is what the Jewish people had done. I'm doing the things that Abraham did. Therefore, I am attached to God just like Abraham is. I have the signs. Abraham's circumcision followed his justification. A person's baptism follows their justification by faith. Our legacy of faith is not about certain rites that we practice. Our legacy of faith is grace from God through faith. And your belonging to Christ is based on His grace to you being received by faith and nothing else. And your baptism or your attending here or your celebration of the Lord's Supper or you're following him, or the type of haircut you get. Well, that's not a sign. But what you do is a sign of what takes place. Now, baptism, the Lord's Supper, gathering together to hear, we're called to not forsake the assembly together with believers. These are important acts of obedience, not options but they are a sign of what God has done within us. When we've recognized that I am a sinner and I cannot have a relationship with God based on my own self, but there is a righteous, all-righteous, all-powerful, eternal person that died a death that he didn't have to die. He died that death for me so that I don't have to be separated from God. I don't have to die in that way. But simply by accepting the fact that He, the offer of righteousness, of relationship with God, because of Christ's death and resurrection, I am made righteous. And therefore, I act in obedience in all the signs of how a saved person should live. Secondly, we see here that justified by grace is not personal righteousness. We are justified by grace, not personal righteousness. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the inherence, if it is the inherence of the law who are being, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The means of Abraham's blessing and his offspring is again righteousness of faith, we're told here. In other words, justification declared righteous by faith. We're told in Galatians 3, 7 through 8, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify all the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. If righteousness was available through obeying the law, Grace through faith is useless, we're told here. It's null. It's void. It's not one or the other. I'm sorry, it's not both and. It's not, well, you know, there's been people that they they were successful. You know, they followed the law, and God looked at them and said, man, you're doing pretty darn good, okay? I'm going to consider you righteous. If the adherents of the law were actually declared righteous from their following the law, faith is null. Faith is void. Law is no help. In fact, what he says here 
is sin plus law equals something even worse, transgression. Okay? Because sin is like what you're born with. <clears throat> sin is like the fact that you, you roll out of bed and before you even know what's going on, you bump your toe and, and you think a bad thought. Okay? Transgression is when you've been told what you should do and what you shouldn't do, and you go and do the wrong thing anyway. And what he put, says here is that leads to God's wrath. Let me digress for a second here. I was listening to um, Ravi Zacharias this past week, and he shared something fascinating that I never thought about before, and it was the fact that the reason why the Jews have been so hated and the reason why destruction of the Jews was considered by the Nazis, the final solution was in many ways the final solution to guilt. Because what came through the Jews was the law code that no one could argue with. It was the final solution of the guilt that man feels because of the revealed righteous law of God. It doesn't lead to righteousness. It leads to sin becoming actual transgression. I mean, how do you feel when your child is like, been told a hundred times and they still keep crossing that line that's what the law brought it didn't bring the opportunity to be righteous before God Romans is pretty intent on this point well let me read this from Galatians 2.16 yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. And that's an idea that Paul is hitting home in verse 16 here. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherents of the law but also to those to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So the purpose of dependence on faith, as Paul is telling us here, is one that God's righteousness might rest on his grace. You know, it's pretty proud for someone to say, I don't need to be regenerated. I mean, that's what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. Scripture calls it, they're regenerated. In other words, we were created once and we screwed it up with sin. And we need to be recreated again. We need to be regenerated. We need to be made into something new in order to have a relationship with God. When a person is saying, it doesn't need to rest on grace, I can do this. What I got is just fine. No, it's been marred by sin. It's been marred by the very thing that Christ paid for on the cross. To say, I don't need grace, is really arrogant. in order that the promise may rest on grace. The second purpose here, in order that may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. That is our legacy of faith from Abraham. Grace. Salvation by grace. For Abraham, God gave him by grace blessings and relationship that he couldn't even dream of deserving. And this came by faith. Abraham trusted that God would then, he trusted God that would, to, 
walk in relationship with him, the relationship that he promised that he would give him. And he trusted God to make him a father when there is no human way of being a father. And God brought righteousness and fatherhood into existence out of nothing. For us, grace is that God offers us relationship with him when we could never, ever dream of deserving it. And our faith is that God will make us righteous through Jesus when we are not righteous. And he declares us righteous in Christ even when our personal righteousness does not exist. Romans is answering the timeless question. Isn't there something I must do to deserve being justified? You know what they call this? Legalism. To do something in order to be justified is legalism. And legalism is idolatry when it comes to the God of the Bible. Remember what verses 4 through 5 says in this same chapter? Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Legalism is to say, God, I've worked and I've worked, now I'm due. You owe me something. You owe me a relationship with you. You owe me your love. You owe me your kindness. But verse 5 goes on and says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's grace. Legalism treats God as if he owes us, if he's obligated to save us because of our personal actions or our personal rights that we've done. Idolatry pops up all the time because idolatry is the timeless challenge to God's glory. And it's, and it's used all the time by his enemy to draw worship away from him. The contrast of worshiping God as he has de- revealed himself to be is idolatry. And we can make an idol out of God, and that's what legalism does. Can I make a side note here? What about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Okay, and I know this is like a lot of heady stuff. You don't go back here and talk about Abraham and all this stuff without getting too heady, I think. But wasn't the Old Testament, somebody might ask, wasn't the Old Testament sacrificial system a way to maintain people's relationship with God through works? Was it some sort of appeasing God? How is this different from idolatry? Idolatry is following rules or, or, or taking actions to persuade a God away from being upset or to persuade a God to help out. Seeing the Old Testament sacrificial system as appeasing God confuses who God is in our minds, okay? And that's part, that's part of what the enemy uses to get us thinking along the lines of idolatry when it comes to God. The Old Testament sacrificial system is not persuasion of God, okay? It is recognition of who he is. It's not persuasion, it's recognition. Let me, let me give you an example. A grain offering in the Old Testament system would be to come and say, God, you have given me grain. You have given me material blessing. You have given everything that I have has come from your hands. And by doing this, I recognize it comes from you. In an idolatrous situation, an offering like that would be to say, here's some of what I have, now give me more. Or don't wipe out my crops, please. That's persuasion. The Old Testament system is recognition. In, in the Old Testament system, a sin offering is recognizing, I have sinned. And without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. I have sinned, and I recognize that something has died within me. Something has died in my relationship with you 
because of my sin, I recognize the weight, the damage of my sin. That's recognition. Persuasion is to say, okay, I've done something wrong. I've made you upset. What do I need to do to get you happy again? That is not what was done in the Old Testament. Now, did people start to treat God like an idol and think that was what it was about? Yes. And that's part of what screwed up the Jewish people's ability to recognize the Messiah. Because they hadn't been recognizing their sin. They thought they'd been paying for their sin. When in actuality, what we've learned in Romans is God was passing over their sin so that he might pour it out on Christ. Every government is happy to have a good law-abiding citizen, Right? Certainly, there should be privileges attached to abiding by the law. There should be consequences to disobeying the law. Let me ask you, what if citizenship was dependent on obeying the law? All right? How bad would that be? What if birth didn't guarantee citizenship, only strict obedience did? What if the smallest disobedience, like jaywalking or accidentally literally, caused you to lose your citizenship? Your citizenship has been revoked. We're deporting you. Where to? We don't care. Even more so, what if this is the way that it worked to be a part of a family? Right? What if a child was required to obey every law, every rule, in order to earn their parents' love? Right? What if failing to wipe their feet or to make them bed caused them to be disowned? You're out on the street. You know, they come home from school and there's their bag on the, on the porch. The obedience that, child, that a child learns is not their means for staying in the family, is it? It's not how they persuade their parents to become or to remain their parents. Obedience is, is, is from the recognition of the parent's authority and of the child's place in the family as their child. It's not about persuading their parents. It's about recognizing their place in the family. In the same way, our legacy just as your legacy with your kids should not be, our legacy is these are the things we do and we don't do. Right? Isn't that sad? You know, you should have a legacy of love, a legacy of embracing one another, even when you're different. You should have a legacy of truth-telling. You should have a legacy of, of faith, certainly. You don't make your legacy, whoa, I almost got kicked out of the family that time I didn't sweep up my mess. In the same way, our legacy as, as people of Christ is not these are the things we do and these are the things we don't do. Our legacy is grace. Our legacy is God's grace received by us through faith and us shedding that grace on each other as well. And we don't lose our relationship with God because we cross some line in the sand, whether we knew about it or not. Life change should accompany salvation. But our relationship with God is not dependent upon our attendance. At church, it's not dependent upon whether we were baptized or not. It's not dependent upon our participation in the Lord's Supper. Those are acts of obedience that should not be ignored. But our relationship with God is not dependent on them. Our legacy is God's grace to us, received by faith. So in this talking about amazing justice... The truth of our amazing justice is that it happened by amazing grace. Justice happened by grace. And the way 
that we make our, that grace ours is by receiving it through faith. Let me ask you something. Do you need to repent of legalism? You might be thinking, that's the oddest thing I've heard. How, why, would, why would I need to repent of legalism? I mean, if anything, God should be happy that I'm legalistic. No. It robs him of his glory of saving you by his grace. Remember, legalism is to say, I do what I do to persuade you to love me. It's idolatry. Do you need to repent of that? I, I just read this morning in the men's reading group. We're in 1 John 4. This is how he puts it, describing, there's lots of different ways to describe it. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, so also are we in this world. There is no love and fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you need to repent of legalism? Of the idea that God's love is dependent on what you do? I challenge you to do so because it's hindering the glory of God. It's hindering the work of God in your life. Because he works through grace. And, and if you're thinking, uh, that's me, but I don't know how. There'll be a shepherd in each one of these corners up here that you can talk to about it. And they would love to talk with you, to walk you through that, to pray with you first and foremost. Let's bow our heads.